What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to this episode of Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. Today we bring you our online event, Martin Amos on Love, Loss and Christopher Hitchens. Amos is often called the Mick Jagger of the British book world. As famous for his love affairs, his friendships and his complicated family history as for his dazzling prose. He's dominated the literary scene for decades. And in this exclusive Intelligence Squared event, he speaks about his much anticipated autobiographical novel, Inside Story. It is perhaps Amos's most intimate book, a meditation on love, loss, aging and death. We encounter the vivid characters who helped define Amos, his father Kingsley, his literary hero Saul Bellow, the poet Philip Larkin and his novelist stepmother Elizabeth Jane Howard. And of course there is his lifelong friend and conversation partner Christopher Hitchens, whose death from cancer he chronicles in some of the tenderest prose he's ever written. In conversation with novelist Alex Preston, Amos reflects on his life and work and explores the hardest questions we all face. How to live, how to grieve and how to die. To hear the full-length episode in which Amos goes in the urgency of youth, the legacy we leave and dealing with the death of Hitchens, become an Intelligence Squared supporter today. Just visit intelligencesquared.com membership. Over to Alex. Hello and welcome to this event with Martin Amos, hosted by Intelligence Squared and Penguin Live. Early on in his 15th novel, Inside Story, Martin Amos writes of reading Saul Bellow for the first time and finding a writer who is writing just for me. This is what I felt when, aged 15 or so, I first picked up a Martin Amos novel. It was money. And I have since read everything he has written with the same feeling of joy and awe. Amos is, I believe, our greatest living novelist, a writer of extraordinary range and humanity, as brilliant in nonfiction as he is in fiction and consistently very, very funny. We're here to discuss the extraordinary inside story. Welcome, Martin. You are in New York currently? Brooklyn. In fact, I'm making eyes at the Statue of Liberty, which is in plain view. Excellent. So, Martin, inside story, a novel, which begins to sound the more one 
reads it like it should have a question mark after it. You describe it at one point as an autobiographical novel, later as a novelised autobiography. I guess, what is the difference between those two? And does the book actually lie somewhere in between? And why did you choose to write in this particular form? Well, this is, it's actually the, one of the reasons I wrote the book was to find out what some of the differences are between autobiography and memoir and fiction, which may sound rather abstract to many, but um, I thought I can't write another memoir. I've already done that. I know my way around that. And it's a, it's a, an excellent form. And as um, I agreed with Salman Rushdie when he wrote Joseph Anton, it, it's easy. It comes at you at about the twice the rate of, of fiction because you don't have to make anything up. So I thought, well, I can't do that again. So I'm going to do it as a novel and see if there's a bit more freedom there. Also, to be blunt about it, when Christopher Hitchens died, my triad of writers in this book, Philip Larkin, Saul Bellow and Hitchens, were suddenly all dead. And that, I, I wondered after a year or two after Christopher died, I thought perhaps I can have another attempt at this book because I'd tried before and failed. And um, there was a bit more freedom. And I wasn't so dependent on wondering what he would think about it. You know, didn't have to worry about the reaction of the principles. And then, of course, it slowed down. It came at the usual rate of fiction, which is about 100 pages a year. And that's why it took, in the end, five years to write. And it seems to me that, again, you talk about that freedom, and that freedom allows you to, I guess, move in and out of fiction. You talk, you have talked in interviews about the fact that you made some things up. You talk very openly that you have taken some things from interviews that Christopher did elsewhere, for instance. You move in and out of the third person in it. So I becomes Martin several times, or he in the in the space of one paragraph. I wonder again, if you could talk about the formal as well as the kind of ethical freedom that writing in the form of a novel rather than a memoir affords you. Well, the begetter of this huge genre called life writing, which is this hazy world that we've been talking about between memoir and fiction, and was D.H. Lawrence. No, no one until him had thought that they could write a novel about what happened to them yesterday. But he did also say that he loved the novel form because you can do anything with it, and that's true. But... I'd like to make it clear that um, the bare bones of what happened are accurate. I didn't take any liberties with any of the medical details or the chronological order of events. It was really, the fictional side of it was really in the interests of modulation and variation in that you don't want to always see I at the top of the paragraph. And it gives you a little shift of perspective if you can go into the third person, particularly when you're writing about embarrassing and shameful uh, interludes in your life. 
I which would which you do brilliantly. Uh, there's <laughs> there, there, there's a line you quote that the autobiography, which contains nothing that is shameful, is not giving you the whole man. And and here we get the whole man. I'd like to come on to. The fact that I think of it as a very hospitable book, it begins with the words welcome. And I guess I'd like you to talk about that idea of hospitality as it pertains to the novel, that it seems to me an an important one, that you are inviting somebody into your book and you are spending that time with them and and you, you return to that idea of hospitality throughout the book. But I'd also like you to speak particularly about the reader stroke writer that comes to visit you in this book, who at one point you identify as if you like your younger self, although perhaps a a more female version of your younger self. It seemed to me a really interesting and complex idea. And I wonder if you could just expand upon that a little bit. Well, the the reader and the writer, that is an incredibly complicated relationship although it seems straightforward enough, the more you think about it. I mean, in a sense, they're the same thing, just as the word guest and host are the same, have the same root. And in French, I believe, Julian Barnes tells me that they're interchangeable, just depending on context. So it appealed to me a great deal. And I think I've discovered the kind of writing I, I like more and more is this welcoming this hospitality from the writer. And I'm turning more and more decisively against experimentation, uh, freakishness, and above all, obscurity. If you went round to Trollope's house, he would welcome you and serve you his best wines and so on. But more than that, he would want to stimulate you into vividness so that he could be stimulated by you. I've been trying to read Faulkner, recently. And with him, you know, you ring his doorbell and he says, who the hell are you? And who asked you along? And, you know, James Joyce would be the same. You'd be given an address of a a house that doesn't exist. And then you'd have to fight your way through a building site. And then uh, he would not appear for half an hour. And then he would arrive arguing with himself in several languages at once. I can't be doing with that anymore. I think there is a quite firm contract between writer and reader, and there are dozens of little correspondences that no two readers have the same image of Madame Bovary. The reader is a, an artist, and no, no two conceptions of the same character will hold, and it's a collaborative form in that sense, interactive form. You quote Philip Larkin in one of Larkin's letters. He says, yours is the harder course I can see. On the other hand, mine is happening to me. Nicely rhyming for a poet. And all our lives are of, they're infinitely interesting to ourselves. How do you judge when writing a book like this, what of your life is interesting to others? On the most vulgar level, it's full of people who are famous. That I was an incredibly fortunately placed observer of the literary life in that my father was a writer, my stepmother of 16 years was a writer. There were always writers throwing up in the driveway and falling down the stairs and um, academics, critics, they were in and out of the house all my life, including Larkin and others. 
So I, I was depending on that to distinguish my life from most others. Uh, the dogged, what happened to me yesterday type of novel is, I think, very hard to justify and very hard to make interesting and very hard to make universal. And in fact, you can't make the individual universal in a autobiographical kind of book. Your concerns might be universal, but your daily life can never be. But I thought tending to be universalized by the fact that many of the characters are, are just, they represent a certain type of literature, a certain tone of literature. And I was crudely exploiting that privileged observer position. That's fascinating. And it, and it brings us to one of the other elements of the book, which is that there is a, a subtitle, How to Write. And this is a book which has constant and, and often brilliant recommendations and bits of advice for the aspirant novelist. Many of those bits of advice you then go on to break and seem to take some pleasure in doing so. You talk about three kind of key interdictions, which is not to write about dreams sex or religion. And you don't give us too many dreams, but you give us something of, of the latter two, and, and you give us quite a bit of sex. It's a book that I think would be very different were Phoebe Phelps not there. And I wonder why you decided to write about her in this book and what you feel. I mean, I guess what I would say is she seems to both lift and darken something which is already relatively dark, that she is a an animating presence at the beginning and, and a comic presence, but the course of your relationship with her is also a kind of tragedy in and of itself, and a tragedy perhaps equal to some of the other tragedies that are contained within it. Well, um, I, I don't see any point in concealing the fact that she is made up. She never happened. I did have some notion earlier on that the female character, the love interest, would be a sort of amalgam of early girlfriends. But then I thought, nah, let me enjoy this holiday from my own life and just create a character. And then it was marvelously informative to find out the difference between simply transferring a real person onto the page and the difference between that and actually creating them. And it's not that they take on a life of their own. E.M. Foster used to line up his characters and say to them, right, no larks. He said, you've got to behave yourself. And when Nabokov heard about this, he just couldn't understand it. He said, the idea of my characters getting out of control, he said, my characters cringe when I come near. <laughs> and uh, he said, I've, I've seen whole avenues of imagined trees lose their leaves in horror as I approach. In other words, presents himself as a, this authorial tyrant. He's just making a point comically. But I, I think most writers would agree that there is a kind of interaction with the characters as well as with the reader, that they go off in unexpected directions and they insist on their own quiddity, their own thisness, that they aren't just pawns in your scheme, that it's a, it's a much more livelier and, and slightly more anarchical process than that. 
The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Yet Phoebe does feel now you say that and I didn't know I've sort of deliberately not read around this book too much and and she does feel very alive and realistic and and yet she does have that kind of hyper real nature that women often take on particularly the girlfriends of your protagonists often take on I guess I just wondered what it was like to write a female figure who was so overtly sexual at a time when you know as you signed in the recent New York Times letter protesting the rise of cancel culture that I felt there were places in this book that seemed like they were deliberately goading the kind of new puritanism that is sweeping around and and how you feel that atmosphere impacts particularly on the work of novelists? Well, cancel culture, it seems to me, is just antithetical to the spirit of literature, that uh, you know, the critic or the commentator shouldn't be there writing speeding tickets and erecting no-entry signs. Any hint of coercion or censure, it seems to me, just anti-literary. It's a philistine manifesto, this idea, for instance, that only black people can write about black people. I was scolded a couple of novels ago for writing about the working classes in England, which uh, I've been doing for 40 years without comment. Yeah, uh, I, I think if, they, if they're only scolding you then, then they've, uh, they've not been reading. I, yeah, and I got off pretty slight in that case, because they could have been doing it for nearly half a century. But I can't take it seriously for a minute, because it it is anti-freedom within the pages of a book. And 
the novelist's sway in a novel is infinite. You're in a godlike relationship to the world you create. And I can't accept, you know, I keep saying fiction is freedom, adding that freedom is indivisible, that either you've got it or you haven't. And I would insist that only over my dead body would I compromise that freedom to oblige these concerns that are strictly socio-political. They're never literary. Yeah, I think that's really important. This is a book that's also concerned with the idea of violence and the manifestation of, of violence. You, you, you say at one point, I read about violence because I don't understand it. And you quote Steven Pinker on the decline of violence. And yet, I think one of the things you get from reading the novel is perhaps the sense that violence is mutable and that it takes different forms at different times. And that, uh, of course, violence as far as the action of physical violence of of one army on, on another, maybe that has changed, but that there are different ways that violence is brought into our lives. And, and you go on to explore some of those. I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about this idea of violence. I was so thrilled to learn from Steven Pinker that one of the causes, he lists it's seven or eight uh, invention of printing, the introduction of police forces, the formation of nation states, etc. But uh, also there, last but not least, is the rise of the novel, that the very action of reading put the 18th century literate English speaker in close contact with Clarissa Harlow, Samuel Richardson's incredibly long and, in my view, tedious novel about that. I was taught at at university and I loathed it. Yeah, yeah, terrible. But it's the biblical, it's the Christian message of do unto others as you would have them do unto you, that if you enter into someone's feelings, empathy is what the novel taught us. And I I was thrilled to find that conceivably my lifetime work has been to bring the level of violence down by a tenth of a millimetre. That seems to me tremendously well worth doing. I think violence is the great curse of mankind with an emphasis on man, since it is almost exclusively a male interest and pursuit. That it's, that I talk at one point about Trump submitting to the moronic sincerity of violence at his rallies and so on. It's the primitive manifestation of sincerity, as you feel so strongly about it, that you have to hurt someone to make your point. And that's why I'm a gynocrat. I'm for female rule, in that I think that there's a real chance of getting off this train that we've been on since civilization began. And very often, female leaders, and there have been about 50 now, 50 women head of state, like Hillary Clinton, who in fact failed in the end to achieve that. But she used to talk as tough as a man, you know, I'll blow Iran off the map if they do this. And I thought, no, that's got to be eradicated too. No longer should women pretend to be as violent as men or have those destructive impulses. And that's why I I admire Angela Merkel so much, because 
she'd been a tremendously successful and unifying politician who nonetheless is still identifiably female, feminine. I was in Germany in 2015 when a million immigrants converged on it. She was known adoringly as Mutti Merkel, not as a leader, as a mother. And I thought, this is what women heads of state should aspire to, a female way of being tough, because men just can't get out of the habit of violence. It's just too ingrained and too wrapped up in their earliest instincts. Yeah, it, it reminded me of, of something that your friend Ian McEwan said and was, I think, slightly mocked for at the time when he said if, if the 9-11 bombers had read novels, they wouldn't have been able to do what they did. And I do think that that idea of a novel being a kind of copula between people and, and between one and another is very powerful. This is obviously a book that is above all else about death. And as you say, one of the freedoms you had was the sad fact that three of the central figures in it are, are now dead. You and your great friend Christopher Hitchens are both optimists, magical thinkers when it comes to illness. You receive the news of Saul Bellow's Alzheimer's with studied insouciance. And Christopher, you say, had a compulsion to stride into his fears. You also talk about the way that the closer you come to death, the more interesting it is. And I thought there was a kind of really powerful interplay of life and mortality throughout the novel, because, of course, the novel is an act of, of life, of living. This is a novel that is powerfully alive. Sorry, this is an incredibly long question, but you also talk about the death of your first attempt to write this. You had a book called Life, a Novel, which you gave up on. It seems to me all of those come together in a kind of dialectic between the living and the, and the dead and between life and dying. And, the, and that this book, for all its obsession with death, is something that remains a powerful statement of the importance of life and of joy in life. Well, thank you, Alex. I'm very glad that that's what you took from it. I'd say towards the end also that the novel depends on death, that if we did have this moronic state where we, we, we all live forever, there would be no fiction, there'd be no art. There wouldn't be enough fascination in the deeper sense of that word, which used to describe the power of a predator to paralyze the prey merely by the, the power of the gaze. And we all gaze at death. It's a very gradual process. It begins with the death of a hamster and then advances through the death of a grandparent until, not until our 30s or 40s, do we actually realize that it's going to happen to us too. Uh, Freud called death the complex symbol since no one could seriously visualize their own extinction. And philosophy has been defined by philosophers as learning how to die. Well, they haven't told us how to do it, have they? They kept it to themselves. I've never seen any helpful advice about how to go about it. It is ne plus ultra, no further beyond. Saul Bellow said, it's not that our knowledge of death is superficial or misguided. He said there is no knowledge. By definition, there can be no knowledge. So it, it does power the novel, in a sense, 
since it makes everything in life contingent and uh, subject to cancel culture of the, of the most physical kind. I'd like to finish up with speaking the day after what is referred to as the American presidential debate, but uh, was neither a debate nor terribly presidential. And uh, Trump is a presence throughout this book, and and you are writing it, you know, there are several kind of present moments of the book, but it is in the the lead up to him taking office in 2016. And and here we are uh, contemplating the potential for another four years of him. I firstly wondered what you thought would happen on November the 3rd, and also just what, what it has been like for you in the States while all of this has been going on and what the atmosphere is like there on, on the streets of Brooklyn. It was very marked on the day after he was elected and I went out the next morning and was reminded of something that Sebastian Hafner had said about Hitler after he was elected in 1933. He said it wasn't horror that he felt. It was a sense of total unreality, which is quite alarming in itself where everything looks tinny and ersatz. And that's how it's been. I mean, every time I hear the phrase President Trump, I'm almost knocked out by what an oxymoron it is. There must be some mistake, I think, every time I hear it. It was a disgracefully frivolous vote for a disgracefully frivolous candidate. And a shame that America will have to carry as long as it lasts. But um, only a pessimist or a cynic can, I think, convince themselves that he'll be re-elected. There is a sort of pendulum of decency in the American psyche that doesn't like daily scandals, daily crimes, hourly lies. Someone has said that it's as if he's been there for eight years. It's, it's as if he's already done two terms, because we're also knackered by having to attend to him. So I think every pressure of human decency is working the other way now. If I was completely wrong about him getting elected in the first place, if he's re-elected, then I would know I won't emigrate. He's a reason to stay, not a reason to leave. And it'll be like the, the fall of Saigon or the collapse of communism. To watch a great nation dissolve will be interesting in the Chinese sense of may you live in interesting times, the curse. Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligence Squared. To hear the rest of the conversation, visit intelligencesquared.com slash membership. This event was produced by executive producer Hannah Kay, with editing from executive producer Rowan Slaney. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next, who we should have on and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events, or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue, featuring some of the world's great minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. 
This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you.